on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Naughty Talk Season 1, Episode 8. I'm Sunny, she, her, and I'm here with Mac, he, him. Mac has been a busy bee lately, and we're recording from two different states today, and I'm excited to have him here. How are you today? I'm doing well, Sunny. How are you? I am well. I am looking forward to this weekend and some naughty camping with a particular daddy type. (laughs) (laughs) It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having some time away. Um, But we have a great show today. We're going to be talking about dollification. And we have a really awesome write-in question, which we'll do in a little bit. And then a little later, we're going to have Enigma back on the show to talk about erotic photography. So I'm excited for today. So let's kind of get to our, our first topic, which is dollification. You and I have done a little bit of teaching on erotic dollification as part of a larger subject, and so we've also demoed it a bunch at different events. Uh, My first book, Turn the Key, heavily features hypnotic dollification, and so I feel like we're getting like a little bit known for that type of play. People tend to associate it with us, um, just like primal play, Um, and I'm cool with that, and it's because we love it so much, so... Dollification is really any kind of kinky, sexy time that involves one or more people assuming the role of a doll at its simplest form. And so it could be role play, it could be hypnotic, lots of options. So Mac, tell us, I always like to start with, you know, why do you love it? You know, if you had asked me this question a year ago, I probably, well, a year and a half ago, I probably could not answer it because prior to our relationship, I had absolutely no experience in erotic dollification. So um, it's been an interesting journey for me, but uh, I really like it because I like the control. I like being able to uh, place my doll in whatever position I want and to uh, basically do anything within obviously pre-negotiated consent um, that I want to her. It's, 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 uh, I kind of kink a little bit off the power exchange, I think. I'm getting kind of aroused just listening to you (laughs) talk about it and like looking forward to this weekend. Um, We're going to get up to all kinds of kinky, naughty shenanigans and possibly in the woods if we can find a place that's private enough since we'll be camping. So, okay, I got to focus, focus back on task. Even just hearing your voice, it's kind of sexy, and I'm in that kind of mood. So, all right. (laughs) I will try really hard to stay on task. So, 
you know, for me, why do I love it? It's about time limited total power exchange. You and I are both doms and we've talked about in the past how with primal play, you know, we can sort of settle the power dynamic physically through primal sparring, that kind of thing. But every once in a while being a control freak, I just like to really let go and it's rare. And I've talked about lots of times how unless it's CNC, so unless consensually somebody is taking the power away from me or unless there's a struggle involved and I'm physically sort of subdued into submission, it's very hard for my brain to get anywhere near that kind of release or anywhere near subspace. So dollification, specifically hypnotic dollification, because for me, I don't think that the role play would be enough to find that headspace, not really being a submissive person. But dollification and hypnotic dollification are a way to sort of explore shedding humanity, being something other. It's time limited, total power exchange. Also, dolls are really beautiful. Often, they don't have to be, you could totally have like a creepy broken doll. But In doll space, I tend to feel kind of pretty. And I also love the flip side. I like being a doll owner or doll maker and letting my sadistic side out a little bit. I love playing with a human dolly as a dom, especially when I'm in little space. So topping from little space, kind of a dynamic with a little who has a new toy or dolly is a super hot thing for me. So really sexy all around. What are your favorite types of dolly activities? Well, I mean, obviously, I think to to start the, you know, being able to use hypnosis on my doll and, and actually have her fall into a doll state, just that alone and, and seeing that, that peace and that serenity come over the face and kind of watch them become that, that plastic, malleable uh, doll form, uh, that right there is awesome. I, I, I love seeing that and I love knowing that that signals the fact that, uh, I have alm- almost, uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit, I'm sure, uh, almost, uh, complete control over everything that, uh, she does and, and she feels. Um, but I really love posing my dolly. I like, uh, dressing her and undressing her and, and bringing her back from, uh, doll form back into human after I've changed her or after I've stripped her. Um, you know, uh, it's fun to, uh, use impact toys on, uh, or in doll mode. And it's fun to, uh, use wax in doll mode too. But so far, I, I would say that everything that I've explored <laughs> in dollification, um, <laughs> there's, there's nothing I don't like. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And whether someone is doing doll play with hypnosis or whether they're doing it as a role play, because we do a lot of hypno, but this totally does not have to be a hypno type of play. It can be very physical. Lots of people enjoy dressing and undressing. They enjoy posing. Lots of people enjoy things to do with dolly boxes, like a box as a type of bondage, or just the doll form itself being a type of bondage. I've seen people experiment with things like palette wrap to create a feeling of being unable to move or to create a feeling of being more rigid or more plastic. 
Again, we talked about the different types of total power exchange. A dolly could be posed and left on display. So there can be exhibitionism. There can be voyeurism involved. We'll dig into a little bit of that stuff when we give some examples. But you touched on something like seeing the dolly become more plastic. And I was going to ask you, because we we do do dress up, but we also do hypnotic dollification where the image of the doll is in our minds, what do you tend to picture as an ideal type of dolly? Like, is there a certain type of doll that in your mind when we do hypno dolly play, I'm becoming? A, a little bit. Um, and I think what I have in mind when uh, I'm putting you into trance and, and really getting you ready for doll mode is um, those porcelain collectible dolls um, with the very, uh, you know, the, what would now probably be considered overly made up, uh, but that Victorian makeup style with the very powdered skin and, and um, the, the bright red pouty lips and uh, you know, a little bit of eye makeup, that sort of thing. Um, That's really the image that I have in my mind as uh, we start our doll play. So kind of like a, a vintage porcelain doll. Yes. Yep. Got it. So when I am in my own headspace and doll space, I tend to sort of think about, and I also like to play with human dolls that have I like to, I really like to play with dolls that are sort of like sex dolls that can be programmed to have limited sounds or speech. I like to picture dolls with posable limbs that will sort of stay in place when posed. And so when I'm in doll space with hypnosis, I feel very rigid and human plastic and kind of posable. So if you imagine sort of like one of those dancer yoga Barbies that have like posable joints at their like wrists, knees, elbows, that kind of thing, it can be so individual. And yet at the same time, you know, that's sort of like the kinesthetic sensation feeling that I have being like plastic, rigid, posable. And I also have an image in my mind where the dress, so like the aesthetic for dolly dressing that I enjoy is much more like what you were describing with sort of a vintage porcelain doll. So when I actually dress as a doll, I really like to wear sort of Lolita style stuff. I like to wear things with ruffles. I like to wear pinafore dresses. Sometimes I like to wear petticoats. I like to wear shoes that have lace or that have like little cutouts. And so in terms of sort of dressing aesthetic, I totally love that like vintage porcelain doll kind of look. But in terms of what my body feels like, I don't feel porcelain. I I definitely feel a little bit more plastic and rigid and poseable and I feel less fragile. I don't feel like a super breakable kind of glass doll. I feel like my body can take a little bit of rough treatment. And that's also something that I like when I'm playing with a doll, because especially when I'm topping a doll, I like to play a little rough. So today we're mostly focusing on our own dollification experience. And I really feel like that's the best information when it comes from someone's personal experience. But I did just want to briefly touch on one other type. Rubber dolling has been sort of a phenomenon and it's sort of a, a culture of its own. 
and a little bit its own thing, but still sort of part of dollification. And it's not something I've done personally, but I have observed someone else playing with this. And it's sort of a place where latex fetish and dollification meet. Usually folks wear a latex suit that includes a mask. So we're talking like full body coverage and allows for with the rubber and latex and things that you put over the suit or under the suit, different types of body modification, at least, you know, like a temporary um, body modification you can put on sort of a doll skin, if you will. And it's certainly something that allows for creativity, but in general, both rubber dolling and other types of doll play, you know, they allow for creativity, gender bending, They allow for objectification, for power exchange, for dehumanization, for voyeurism, for exhibitionism, all kinds of things, CNC. So I just wanted to touch on that a little bit because I know we're going to talk so heavily about our own play, which is mostly hypnotic. And, um, you know, rubber dolling is something that doesn't require any hypnosis to play with. And really, you know, most of the dressing, application of makeup, dolly bondage, all of that stuff that we mentioned before, none of that requires hypnosis either. Do you want to say anything about how you and I sort of got started with the whole Dolly thing. I know we touch on it in some of our classes, but like where it came from. Sure. Uh, We actually, it was um, pretty much something that we got into very early in our relationship. And uh, about, oh, what, about three weeks, I think, after we first started getting serious, uh, we both attended the Charmed uh, conference in 2021. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Charmed is an erotic hypnosis conference in um, mid to late January, um, at least most years that I've attended. Anyway, it's been in that time frame. And uh, it was during that conference that we actually attended a class in which they mentioned dollification. And I went, huh, that's kind of cool. And I was mentioning that to Sonny and Sonny's like, oh yeah, I've done this before. Do you want to try it? And I'm like, yeah, let's try it. And, you know, as the saying goes, the rest is kind of history. Um, So yeah, that's how we started. Or at least kind of how you started. Because as you mentioned, I had been doing it before. And it's funny because I can't, I remember attending that And I remember that at that point, dollification was already kind of a big thing for me. I had already written Turn the Key. And for anyone who hasn't heard me mention it, my first novel, Turn the Key, is a story about erotic hypnosis and dollification. And you can read that. It is available on Amazon. Little plug. But really, you know, writing that novel for me personally was part of my exploration of this type of play. And I had, you know, gotten into erotic hypnosis and I had started to fantasize about this type of thing. And actually, I'm recalling now seeing a demonstration at a different convention and it actually was done by HypnoStory. I think this was like the first time that I actually encountered HypnoStory and we didn't become friends until months later, but, um, I stumbled into a class that HypnoStory was teaching 
and it involved a scene with dollification and both hypnosis and palate wrap. And, you know, that idea just really stuck deeply in my mind. And then I was kind of like, what is this hypnosis thing? I want to do that. This dolly thing seems really hot. And, you know, so at the time I was in a relationship and I, I started learning about hypnosis, but I also started experimenting with hypnotic dollification very early on that journey. And, you know, during this time I wrote the book and when I write, I sort of slip into almost like a trance space and I'm sort of in my brain living what my characters are living and sort of experiencing in a semi-dissociative state is the best way I can describe it, what my characters are experiencing. And so I put a lot of scenes into that that I knew, you know, a lot, some of the stuff in the book definitely borders on magical because it's so extreme and intense. And when I was new to hypnosis, it was a little bit out of reach, but the more we play with it, I'm, I'm really confident that a lot of the things that I wrote are, you know, within the realm of possibility to explore, you know, certainly things like having with hypnosis, the subject be in a a headspace where they feel like they can't move their own limbs or where they have the experience of losing time or where there are conditions under which their body can move or produce sound. Like these are all things that you can really do with hypnosis and that you and I really started to bring into our play. And one of the awesome things about it is that like in the story, because we definitely play with specific themes from the book, because those were my personal fantasies, you know, really the fantasies came before the book, but we both having an understanding of that storyline have been able to reduce a lot of different hypnotic effects into a single trigger, which is that when you drop me into trance and mime inserting a key into my throat and turning it, it sort of activates dolly mode. And for me, that's not being able to move on my own, holding poses that you put me in and having full sensory awareness Now, some people might do dolly play and they might want to have the experience of not feeling what's being done to them or experiencing what's being done to them in the moment. And some of them may want to use hypnosis to sort of turn that off and then use hypnosis to relive it at a later time. There are so many different ways you can play with it. But for me, I really wanted to feel all of the physical sensations and know that even though I could experience it, I couldn't do anything about it. And of course I can do something about it. I have internal safeties. I have ways to come out of trance. I have personal agency, but you know, it was important to me to have the experience or the play that I was unable to stop these things. And hypnosis makes that feel a little bit more real, even though those safeties are always accessible. And I think that, you know, simplifying that whole shared experience down to a single hand gesture, really with you sort of being a new hypnotist at the time, allowed us to have a really profound hypnotic scene without a lot of hypnotic language being used, without you having to do anything really complicated as the hypnotist. Yeah, it was easy street for me. <laughs> and and really, you know, that's important to remember with hypnosis, the subject's brain is the one doing the work. So you know, that's why choose your own adventure language, that thing you most want to feel or that 
sensation you recall experiencing from last time, using that type of language can be really powerful because, you know, the hypnotist is sort of a guide, but really, you know, the whole experience is taking place in the subject's mind. And so if something is really rooted in the subject's mind, if they've had an experience that, you know, was particularly poignant or that they have a very strong memory of, could be anything like the memory of what it felt like to be suspended or to be in bondage. You can recreate those things. So this is a really great segue into a write-in that we have, and I'm super excited to have a question come in for the show. And our question today comes from Sadie. It's a really good question, and it's something I'm actually going to break into two parts because the first part is about agency. And so the question reads, do you really lose track of personhood? I guess to term it. I can only think of extreme depersonalization and derealization with full time cessation within a complete dollification experience. So Sadie's really asking, you know, can you really lose track of your humanity when you're doing that type of scene? Can you really lose time? And so my best answer, having experienced this as the subject, is that in terms of personhood, losing track is a temporary situation. I lose track because I'm enjoying it. It's because it's where my brain wants to go. That said, I never lose agency or the ability to come out of trance. My internal safeties are automatic and you can do extra programming for automatic safe words, that kind of thing. But the reality is that for most people, if their actual safety is being threatened, they're just going to come out of trance automatically. For example, when you're doing breath play, you can do hypnotic breath restriction, but if the person really needs to breathe for safety, they're always going to to have that be accessible to take a breath. So... A really good example would be that we did an event that was a living art exhibit and Mac often throws me over his shoulder or picks me up when I'm in doll mode. And this one night I was wearing this brand new dolly dress. It was so pretty and it had this big heavy petticoat and it sort of created an illusion, I think, because my body was under so many layers of fabric And so when he picks me up, it's really important that he grabs me in a certain way and my hips are sort of in line with his shoulder for a proper type of lift. And because the layers of fabric in the petticoat sort of changed the proportions of my body, when he went in to lift me, he sort of got my thighs instead of my hips. And the result was almost like throwing me too far over his shoulder. (laughs) And I know it was really embarrassing because so many people were watching, but I was really proud of us because, and I I talked about it right then and there in the moment, you know, as soon as I felt us off balance and I knew we were going down, I immediately came up and out of trance automatically. And the two of us together worked to sort of control the fall so that like we knew we were going down and it was going to look ridiculous. Like I basically landed with my crotch in this enormous like petticoat on his face. But even though it really looked dramatic from the outside, we had a very controlled fall and nobody was seriously injured. You had a little bump on your elbow, but for the most part, it could have been so much more disastrous. I could have struck my head. I could have, 
you know, just flattened you (laughs) completely. I mean, I did kind of flatten you, but it was in a way that nobody was seriously injured. And that's because without any discussion, you know, my body just felt the sensation that we were starting to fall and immediately came up and out of trance. And I'll let you tell the next bit because it's another good example. Um, But can you want to talk about the other way that my body kind of demonstrated sort of automatic safety during that exhibit? Sure. So um, one of the things that that uh, I'll be honest with you, I rarely think about is the amount of effort that uh, Sunny has to exude to be able to hold a certain position that I put her in. And during this living art exhibit, um, I had put her in a position and somebody had asked a question. So I started answering it and ended up having Sunny in this position for longer than she could safely hold it. So she was able to just come right up out of trance and and see to her own safety on her own before I even realized that, you know, it was too much fatigue for her to handle. Right. And it wasn't even, you know, that you were being totally inattentive. It's just that that type of personal limit. How long can my body comfortably physically hold this pose is something that could be really unpredictable because it might be different for each and every body position. And so with something like that, you know, we were taking requests from the people who were attending the exhibit. So they would say like, how about like she's up to bat in a baseball game or, you know, whatever. They would come up with different poses. And it was really fun and silly because I would be in doll mode and Mac would pose my body And, you know, a lot of those were poses that we had never done before. And it was also the first time we had done it in such a public way. And so usually when he poses me, it's for sexy times. And it's often like in a supported position lying down on a surface like the floor or a bed because we're playing. And so, you know, normally in the course of our private play, we're not doing so many poses like that that are sustained for a long period of time. And you know, of course you get caught up in the moment and you're kind of making a show of it. And he was, you know, in like presenter mode and show mode and like, you know, interacting with the crowd. And my brain just kind of noped out. It was like, nope, I can't stand like this anymore. And I'm pretty sure I came out of it bratting at you a little bit. Like you left me standing in this pose for way too long. Right. I left, I left you up to bat too long. Yeah, there were a couple times that it happened, though, even when you were being attentive, you know, because it only happened once. And I was like, hey, I know we've never done, you know, this exact type of thing before. But, you know, just be aware that my body can't sustain these poses for a really long time. And even after that, when you were being more attentive about it, like there were still some that felt physically too long for my body and automatically you know, whatever space my head was in when you posed me, I came up and out of trance in order to adjust myself and assume a safe and comfortable position. So, you know, those are really good examples. And in private, when I'm safe, and I'm loving it, and I'm super fractionated, which is, you know, we always joke about it being like hypno fucked up, you know, in and out of trance so many times that you get a sort of altered feeling, almost like you are a little bit intoxicated on the trance. And sometimes when I'm in that space, 
when we play, I actually get stuck in between doll mode and human mode because my brain loses track of where we're at. And I can't remember which way you've turned the key. And even though I don't usually speak in doll mode, it's happened several times. This phrase just kind of pops automatically out of my mouth. And I'm like, am I a girl or am I a doll? And then, you know, daddy's able to redirect me. And that's a really fun space to be in and one that my brain probably wouldn't hang it out in if I wasn't finding it fun, if I wasn't really finding it hot and loving it. It would be something that my brain would sort of say for it out of. And you actually, uh, just to, to plug your your FET writing a little bit, you actually wrote a story on FET Life about this exact situation, about not her, her brain trying to figure out if she's in doll mode or if she's in little girl mode and and getting stuck and needing some help from me to figure it out. That's right. I did. It's actually, it's still on FetLife and I believe it was called Barbie Girl. Is that the one? Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah. And then, so Sadie actually had a second part to their question and, you know, kind of to wrap up the dollification topic, we will, we'll go out with the second half of the question. And so it reads, um, for yourself or those you may know of, with it being so ingrained in those who practice it habitually, can those instances be brought back or is the amnesia play too strong? And so generally when Mac and I do dolly play, we don't include amnesia, although we totally could. Well, I mean, maybe not we could because it's not actually something that my personal brain does really well. I'm too much of a control freak. And also people's brains are really good at some things in hypnosis and not other things. It's very individual. So in our personal dolly play, there is not an amnesia component. But I have heard about others who include amnesia play. So sort of, um, I want to say that I even heard a story from hypno story and Panda pet that involved something like this. And I I've definitely seen them do other types of amnesia play. So the, the basic answer to the question is, although I, I don't do this myself as the bottom, but the basic answer to the question is if you do include amnesia play, the memories are never really gone. They're just sort of tucked out of the way just a little bit, just out of reach, kind of like when you know you know something and it's on the tip of your tongue and you just can't find it. But yes, the memories can absolutely be retrieved. And again, with hypnosis, the mind has to want it to work. So if you really need access to that information, you really should be able to access it at any time. It's not really gone as if you'd had like a head injury and it was completely you know, gone because there was brain damage. So a really good example that HypnoStory has given in the past is something that is in the, it's actually mentioned in the episode where we're talking about callers and HypnoStory mentions that his partners have a key um, to their own caller on their key rings for safety's sake, just in case they ever need to remove it for safety. And that in the case of at least one partner, hypnosis has been used on an ongoing basis so that the person is not aware that the key is there. So they still feel like the collar is locked and they can't unlock it themselves unless unless it's really needed. And in the event where it's really needed for safety to remove the collar, 
that person just remembers that the key is there. So that's a really good example of the memory just coming back. And that's also assuming that you have done some kind of conditioning to make the amnesia play last for a while. Because when you do amnesia play, you can absolutely put time limits on. Like you will not remember this until I say this word, until the scene is over, until you leave this room and then your memories will return to you. So you can definitely do amnesia play in a time-limited kind of way. And you can also do amnesia play where you're sort of limiting the things that the person is temporarily forgetting. A common one would be just for fun, having them count to 10 and forget the number four. And you might even, you know, do a little teasing about it. Like, didn't you miss a number? That sort of thing. And all of this requires really explicit negotiation. Like, what are you comfortable having included in an amnesia play? How long can it last for? And so you can do lots of things with it. But um, it is important to remember that, yes, the memories can be retrieved. It's, it's not like a brain injury. It's not like you're permanently removing access to those memories. All right. Um, so thank you so much, Sadie, for those really awesome questions. And I'm hoping that they did provide some information for our listeners. And I wanted to talk about that question today because it, it definitely folds into the, the dollification discussion. And it's actually something that came up after we did a class with dollification demos. So was there anything else, Mac, that you wanted to say specifically about dollification? I don't think so. I think we covered it pretty well for, at least for, you know, the, the very basics of it. Yeah. And I mean, certainly like we covered so many different things. All of these different hypnotic techniques are things that can be learned. I just want to emphasize that on the show, we touch on things in a broad kind of way to give people ideas for things that they might want to explore or learn more about, but it's very difficult in the space of an episode to really do a how-to. So just know that all of these things require, you know, explicit negotiation, explicit consent, and um, that there are resources out there. The Constellation server has a lot of hypno stuff going on in it. Charmed, as we mentioned, is a great convention that is specifically focused on erotic hypnosis. There were lots of hypno classes at Kink School recently, all of our regular cast members taught at. So definitely resources out there if anybody wants to learn more about hypnotic dollification or hypnotic um, play in general. All right. Next up, we have Enigma. Welcome back to the show. How are you today? I am doing very, very well. Um, definitely, you know, it's good to talk about the fun stuff with all the things happening in the world. I, 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 I'm definitely excited to talk about um, photography today. Yay! I'm really excited to talk about it, too. It's a really fun topic. So, I mean, I always like to start with why do you love it? So, I I got into photography close to a decade ago, and it was literally, um, like, I dabbled with it. Like, you know, I, I played around with disposable cameras, and I, I, I still have it somewhere, like, cheap digital cameras, but, like, never really, like, thought about it doing it, like, as a as a, like a real hobby. And then my parents got me um, a really nice, uh, at least <laughs> for me at the time, it was a really nice um, camera, the Canon T3i. Um, highly recommend it for anybody who's looking to get into photography. It is a great introductory camera. Um, but yeah, they get me that one. And I just started doing 
uh, whatever I could with it. Like uh, friends would let me take pictures of them. But my my first real kind of, I guess, mentor as a photographer uh, was a friend of mine who their specialty was uh, specifically uh, boudoir photography. And so a lot of my style, um, it's definitely got has its own vibe at this point, but I definitely learned a lot of what I do from him. And then it just kind of like grew from there. Um, I really, really enjoy it. I love capturing people and like finding really cool ways to capture the person. I find that there's a lot of emphasis on editing and Photoshop and that sort of thing. And that's not really something I like to do. I like to uh, take pictures, find really cool stuff, stuff to shoot and ways to shoot that doesn't take away from who the person is like I, I, and, and like their personality. I, I love capturing like the model or the, the, the person's personality in my pictures. Wonderful. And you actually have some art that is for sale and a little bit public. Where can people go if they're interested in finding some of your art and checking it out? Sure. Um, if they want to find my my stuff in general, they can find me on Instagram and Twitter, uh, both under Enigma Photog. That's E-N-Y-G-M-A-P-H-O-T-O-G. Um, they can find me on both of those platforms. And then in both places, there is a link tree that has um, all of my sp- spots. It's my social medias, but it also, like you said, it has my um, four sale shops. I have a, a print shop where you can get um, a select uh, grouping of images on you can get them on uh, canvas prints you can get them on backpacks that's all sorts of things you can get them there um, and then i also have it's very similar to uh, places like patreon or OnlyFans, but i have a uh, website called Bentbox, and what that is is people can purchase packages of all of the not safe for work pictures so the stuff that I can't share on Instagram, um, I put it all there. And so people can purchase that and see just the the full spread of those uh, of those images. Wonderful. Um, it's interesting that you say that. And it wasn't something that I, I had in my notes, but it's just kind of popping into my brain, being a creator of erotic art myself. And I spend more time in front of the camera than behind it, although I have been experimenting a little bit, um, especially in isolation mm-hmm. with taking my own photos. And I, I mean, I started with like cell phone pictures and I, I recently got a real camera and I'm very frustrated with all the buttons because even <laughs> if I know like what kind of setting I want it to do, <laughs> like right. making it actually do that thing and then remembering it for the next time. Um, I feel like it's the kind of thing that you might get muscle memory for, but eventually I may get there. But really, I I think it's interesting because you mentioned being on Instagram and not being able to share certain things. And it's something that I've run into with my erotica writing, particularly my novels and wanting to promote them. And while lots of different platforms want to sell your books, they don't want to allow you to use their advertising features because it has adult content. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that or how you've sort of navigated that and still managed to get your stuff out there. So for me, Instagram specifically, um, and Facebook to a lesser extent, are they are simply there to kind of be a portfolio um, they are there. So if I'm I'm out in the world and I'm talking about my photography, I can quickly pull up my Instagram and or they can pull up my Instagram and see a a very specific select selection of my photography. So it's stuff that I really like um, that shows off what I can do, but it's not explicit. That stuff generally is going to be posted to Twitter. Um, but even then, Twitter is 
there. It's like, oh, you can have nudity, but then they'll just take down various sex workers with no reason. So they're like, as far as like social media and advertising in that respect, that's not that's going to be something that's a little tricky, especially like you were saying, uh, if you're in any way part of the erotic uh, world dealing with sexuality or nudity, like you're, you're going to run into a lot of walls that way. The best advice I can give for people getting into it, either as the model or the photographer, just have your stuff on multiple platforms. If you're on Instagram, like I know people that have two, three, four backup accounts just ready to go for when the inevitable happens and Instagram shuts them down they have backups ready to go. Um, if you can have the money, setting up your own website is is a good thing to have. But you know, the websites aren't necessarily... Um, like, people don't necessarily go to Google and look for boudoir photography. Like, you have to... If you're going to put your money into a website, you're going you're gonna to have to put a lot of money into it to make it searchable and successful. So if you're going to go that route, just have yourself on multiple social platforms on multiple things that you um, can get on. And you're going to have a lot better time than just like, like I'm just posting on Instagram. Eventually you're going to get flagged and shut down. That's just kind of the inevitable, unfortunately. I'm laughing to myself here because I'm currently in Facebook jail as we (laughs) speak. Oh yeah. Facebook jail is so easy to get into. Yes. And the newest thing is they send you a message when they put you in Facebook jail that says, Normally, we would allow you to appeal, but currently we have a workforce shortage. And so there is no appeal process currently. And it was really frustrating because obviously, you know, I've been planning to promote the podcast and, you know, I have a new book that I'm working on. And it's just been sort of frustrating overall because it's not really just Facebook. And I guess maybe my issue is that I don't produce anything that's even remotely vanilla ever. So (laughs) I don't really have like a portfolio of things that are safe for work that I can kind of, you know, and I've gone about it different ways. Like I've tried like maybe, you know, if I advertise like a romance novel. And I I really try to keep my advertising very Mm -hmm. clean. And I I think to myself, if they were to approve this, and then someone were to buy this book, like they are not going to get what they are expecting. Because my stuff is really, you know, it's really dark erotica. So anyway, I think it's something that anybody who is in the erotic art industry of any kind deals with. And it's a frustration. And I second your idea about building a website. One of the things that I'm doing right now is really trying hard to build my email Mm. list so that I have a private way to contact people who are actually interested in the type of stuff that I produce. And if anybody's listening and interested in that, (laughs) they can find a link to sign up for it on my website, sunnyleemain.com. I'm going to plug that just a little bit. But I think that it's important that even though mainstream society says that we really need to, you know, cover up erotic art and not make it public, I really think that producing erotic art is so important just for representation and self-expression. You can use erotic art to communicate with your partner, to explore fantasies. I just think it's a really important thing. Do you want to talk at all about why you love erotic art in particular or why you think it's important for people to create it. I, I think that it's in, I'll, I'll start with that. One. I, I think it's important that people create erotic art because I mean, for one thing, it's something that's been happening for thousands of years. Like we have evidence of ancient civilizations, like ancient Greek, ancient Egypt, um, like having erotic art. Like it's, it's part of all, it, it is part of humanity it is a part of culture of, 
tapping into our sexuality and our sensuality and expressing it in different ways. And so that's, again, I go back to like, I don't do a lot of Photoshopping because what I'm trying to capture is their, their natural vibes, their natural sensuality that isn't hit, hidden by a bunch of Photoshopping. Like I'm, I'm in a bunch of groups where it's like, people will often be like, Hey, I'm a retoucher. I'm an editor. You can hire me, blah, blah, blah. And their after picture of a before and after is just like the person looks plastic. And so what I like to do, and this is definitely something that's coming out more and more in the erotic world, also in the porn world is having more and more like people want realism. They want to, they want to look at people that are real and like see that, that realism captured. And so that's, that's what I like to do. That's what I like to look for. I like to look for the beauty in somebody that is already there and not designed and like cultivated through a lot of editing. Absolutely. I think it's definitely important, one, to recognize that sex is normal. It's human. Mm-hmm. It's healthy. It's not going away. No, not at all. <laughs> so and it and it's diverse. You know, there's so much variation in human sexuality. And in general, that variation is also mm-hmm. normal. And, you know, I I've thought a lot about the sort of body positivity movement and spending a lot of time in front of a camera. Um, on the other side of the lens, I usually am really picky, but I will edit my own mm-hmm. photos. I don't usually like to let anybody else have control over, for example, changing my right. body. So I'm not the most fun to <laughs> work with because I'm really like picky about how my body is represented. And I mean, I do things like if my skin breaks out right before a photo shoot, I'm a human being. And if I think it's a, you know, a wonderful photo, but I have a giant spot in the middle of my forehead, I'll probably brush mm-hmm. it out. I'm not going to lie. But I, I'm really, you know, it matters to me that I am not using like the tools to change the the size and shape of right. my body, that sort of thing. You know, what you're seeing is really how it's looking that day. Aside from maybe some of those light things like, you know, brushing over my skin if my face has broken out or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And and I don't mind saying that I, I do that to my photographs because it's something that I'm self-conscious about um, when it does happen. But it happens to everybody. And you know what? There are days when I don't have to edit my skin. I don't feel like it really changes the representation of who I am as a mm-hmm. person. And nobody would look at a photo of me that I've posted on the internet on FetLife and then see me in person and think, like, that's not the same person. Right. And, and like, I've, I've edited out, like, you know, somebody had a good case of back acne. And so I went in, like, I didn't take it all out, but I took like the big, like, like more obnoxious parts of it out. And like, there are people like, like you're saying, like maybe they got scratched by their cat, like a couple of hours before the shoot. And so there's this like tiny little scratch on their alarm. Like I can, I can take that stuff out. But like you were saying, I just, I don't like to change who the person is. And I think a lot of uh, Photoshop does that. Absolutely. I think that one of my personal goals in life is just to live as my authentic Mm -hmm. self. And so I try to let that come through in my art. And, you know, in general, I just want it to be clear that what people are looking at in a photograph is really me. Well, yeah. And and, and that comes around to like, people are getting into photo shoots for a lot of different reasons. Like if you're doing it as a professional photographer, professional model, that that's one way to do it. Some people hire me. Like I had somebody reach out um, a few months ago and they wanted to hire me because they are about to have like major body surgery. And so their body was going to be very, very different in a few months. And so they wanted to kind of do 
a boudoir picture, a photo shoot before, and then a boudoir photo shoot after. And so there's a lot of different reasons why people do this sort of photography, uh, whether as the model or the photographer. Um, and like we, we talked about in our last segment, like this is something where you want to have a good conversation with the people that you're working with so that everybody knows what's, what's going to happen and, w- and the reason why you're getting into um, this photo shoot. Absolutely. And I, I think for anybody who looks at erotic modeling and thinks, oh, that's degrading or demeaning, I think you should spend some time in front of the lens doing a boudoir mm-hmm. shoot because it can be so incredibly empowering. It can help with self-esteem to just have a moment where you get to focus on yourself and to feel you know, really beautiful in that moment and to see yourself through somebody's eyes um, other than your own and to have control over your body. It's a way, you know, modeling is a very physically demanding. It's another way that you can sort of test the limits of your body. So I just think it can be a really positive experience overall, as long as it's done because it's what you really want to do. Right. And it, it's, it's the, so the, the, the idea of erotic photography, like this is something that I've, I've gotten into discussions with people about. It's like, there's lots of different types of erotic. There's lots of different types of um, photography, like boudoir kind of became in the last five, six, 10 years or so uh, to be kind of an umbrella term that basically means generally speaking, um, scantily clad women, scantily clad women in suggestive poses is kind of what that became when like, there's a difference between boudoir photography and erotic photography and implied nude photography. Like there's, there's subtle differences between them. And, and that's, and it's kind of like, what, what kind of message are you trying to send with your, with your photography and with your modeling? Right. You know, what is mm-hmm. your motive? What are you hoping to gain from it? And I definitely think that that's one of the things that's really important to discuss when you think about consent for a photography mm-hmm. scene, specifically, you know, who's going to own those photos, um, who can distribute them or post them, what part of your body can be photographed, you know, that sort of thing. If somebody else is going to be in the photos, is it okay for them to touch you? If so, where? And I think that just having a clear idea in your mind about what the goal of the shoot is, like you can have a totally professional erotic shoot where it's just about Mm -hmm. the art. And you can have an erotic shoot that is basically you taking selfies during a play session. And both of those things can be amazing for totally, you know, different reasons. But you should be really clear about what is this shoot? Why are we doing it? And what are the boundaries? Right. And um, l- literally, like, w- w- as far as a photographer, you know, like on my side of things, usually, uh, my my goal is to not to be a creeper. I am there to capture somebody in a very intimate, a very... Uh, vulnerable moment. And so the last thing that um, you want to do is, is kind of make that person unnecessarily uncomfortable. So like, that's why you want to literally negotiate kind of like you would in a scene, negotiate what's going to be happening in the, in the photo shoot. And then while you're shooting, you still want to have that open communication. So like, if I'm trying, if I want the, the model to do a specific pose, I could, go up and like physically move them or I can also like try to like demonstrate it in a very like silly way 
but like still be able to like show them the, the, the move I want them to do. And then they can do it from there of like their hair isn't falling the way that I want it to. I can go over there and move the hair or I can be like, Hey, I need your hair to fall in this way. And 99.9% of the time, the models be like, Oh yeah, I know, know exactly what you mean. And then if, if you're not communicating, right, then you want to get that consent. You want to get that consent before you move in and t- start touching the model. Um, because that's, that's not, just going up and touching people, that's not okay in out in the public world. It's not okay in the in these sorts of situations. Absolutely. And for folks who are completely new to lifestyle, new to kink, specifically people who are sort of dipping their toes in via social media for the first mm-hmm. time, absolutely vet somebody who sends you a message and says, Hey, I'm a photographer. Do you want to do, you know, an erotic shoot? Because not all of those messages are really from somebody who, you know, is focused on their art. I think that, you know, that's probably pretty plain to see, but it can be very flattering that somebody is interested and wants to photograph you, especially if modeling is something that you want to break into um, or explore. So really just, you know, can I see your portfolio? Who else have you photographed? You know, can I talk to someone who has been to one of your shoots? Mm-hmm it's cool that I bring somebody with me, you know, just to hang out so that I feel safe, right? Those are all questions you can ask. Well, you, you also want to um, look at the photographers, uh, you want to look at like what they've shot before. Because um, often that will give you an example of like, of what could happen. Like if you see a lot of pictures of like the same type of person, it doesn't necessarily mean this, but a lot of times it's going to mean that they that they have they have their type of woman, and that's the only type they like to shoot. And so you're you're basically there to be their eye candy, and so that's something you want to look out for. Um, the, the way that they comment, like in your communication with that person, like how do they comment on other on on uh, previous models? How do they talk about your body? Like it's it's that sort of thing. Like in, at the end of the day, like if your gut feels this person's creepy, trust your gut because a lot of times that's going to that that's going to save you from a lot of grief. Absolutely, and also just to mention that if exhibitionism or voyeurism through a lens is your thing, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Just be open about it. That this is basically um, a play session. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a scene. We're both going to enjoy the process of taking pictures. Maybe there's going to be play, negotiate Mm -hmm. it. You know, you don't have to be a professional photographer or a model to enjoy that sort of thing. Just be upfront about what it is. Is it a professional shoot or is this a play scene? Right. And then some other kind of like red flags to think about when specifically you're going to be the the model, but also as the photographer, Um, things you want to keep in mind when you're reaching out to people to shoot with a lot of times, especially the first shoot, they're going to have either a safe call or they might even bring a friend with them. It's going to come off as a huge red flag. If you'd be like, nah, I don't really want a person there. I have run into people who like come with the person who's, who's going to be the model, but they're, they're very like kind of like backseat photographer and they're doing a lot of like critique from the back row and like doing a lot like that sort of stuff. Yeah, that sucks. But that doesn't necessarily mean every single model that comes through is going to bring that type of person. And that type of person can a actually be incredibly helpful. Um, a model bringing their best friend with them can be their like hype girl and they can like help them like feel really comfortable in a shoot while just being with them, just being them with a stranger isn't going to give them that sort of comfort. So like 
that sort of stuff you want to keep uh, uh, an eye out for. And then like, how do they, how did like you saw talking about like in their, your initial communication over like social media or email, wh- what are they asking for? Are they asking for, it's like, Oh yeah, just show up. Like I've seen your pictures. Like if they ask for like more pictures, specifically it's like, Oh, I want to see you naked first. Like that sort of stuff isn't okay. Like, I don't need, need, need to see you naked before we do a photo shoot. Like I've seen your pictures. I hope you've done the same with me. And so both of us understand like where our comfort level is, is because we've talked about it without like asking for creepy pictures. Absolutely. And I think that just kind of knowing what your limits are, just like when you're negotiating a kink scene is very important. So I'm an exhibitionist. I am not very shy in front of the camera. However, you know, my art, while it's what I love, it's not my primary job. So you're almost never going to find a picture of me where you can see my face and I'm naked or my whole face and I'm naked at the same time. And I choose not to have any direct genital shots available, you know, publicly. That's something that I, I reserve as private for my partners and that I just don't want floating around on the internet. So I will have photos of my face where um, I'm often wearing like big opaque sunglasses or where I'll put a blur on the sunglass so you can't see my eyes and facial recognition mm-hmm. or, you know, my face is turned away or there's artful cropping and often there will be full versions of those photos. But if it's going to be shared in an, a public setting, you're never going to see a picture of me where I have my whole face showing and and nudity. And everybody has different comfort levels with those sorts of things, but it's really good to know that and to really think it mm-hmm. through before you get in front of the camera. Yeah, and, and I've had I've had models that have shot with me before that have similar um, similar boundaries in place, and I literally have a wall. Like the the great thing about COVID is it kind of made masks a lot more acceptable. And, but even before that, like I would have people come in, like I have those like plastic full face masks that you can get from party city or any sort of like party supply store. And those are great for like concealing the person's identity. You can also use shawls. You can use, um, you can use creative shooting where it's like, if they have long hair, you can kind of do a pose where it's, it shows off the body, but it blocks their face. Um, you can also get messy and use like body paint to cover up tattoos and birthmarks and all sorts of stuff. Like, and this is, again, this is all stuff that you, uh, want to talk about before you ever start doing a shoot. You want to know where everybody's, um, where everybody's limits are so that while you're in a shoot with them, you can do your best to make sure you don't cross them. And a lot of people that have that anonymity, uh, in pl- want, want to have that anonymity in place because for lots of reasons, they're teachers, maybe they, they have family that would be incredibly judgmental. There's a lot of reasons why those boundaries are in place. And especially if you're going to be, a, be the photographer, you want to do whatever you can to respect those boundaries. And that would be another really big red flag if somebody is trying to, just like in a kink scene, push against mm-hmm. your limits. If you say, I want to keep my panties on and they are pushing you to take them off, giant red right. flag. Yeah, well and 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 you touched on this earlier and that this is something that would maybe come up in either before like during the negotiation or even on a shoot. This is something where a lot of photographers, especially the ones like me who do have kind of a professional aspect to their photography, we do have contracts in place. We do have things that kind of say we own the rights of the pictures and but like also these contracts are like it says what I'm going to use it for 
and what I'm not going to use it for. So like my, my general contract says I'm going to use it for uh, publicizing my work and all of this stuff. But it says, if I'm going to sell it, I'm going to get your explicit permission. I'm never going to sell anybody's pictures without their, uh, without them giving their consent to me. And so that's something that if they do have a contract in place, which I highly recommend everybody does, you want to actually read these contracts because you don't, you want to make sure that you're signing up for something that you are comfortable with. Even, even outside of that, like I had a friend of mine who we did a bunch of really fun photo shoots with, but they were going into a grad school program and needed those pictures taken down. And yes, I had a contract that said, yes, I can keep those up, but I took those down because that's, you want to respect people's changing and boundaries and you want to respect people as like they, they're, as they grow in their life. Yes. And also a little bit of, you know, pre-planning about where you're going to be in the long run, because once something is, for example, on the internet, it's never Never. really gone. You know, it's, it's just like when you think about sexting, whatever, when you're thinking about distributing photos of your body, you can never really erase them. So it is something to think about. And if what you really want are photos that are for yourself, if you don't want the photos to be in somebody else's control, you can certainly book a boudoir shoot with a photographer where you pay the photographer to photograph you and you own the rights to the photo. And as long as you're not signing any kind of model release, you know, that will also be outlined in the contract. And I've seen a lot of boudoir photographers offer things like discounts. If, you know, boudoir photography, if you're paying to be photographed, it can be very expensive, just like any kind of professional photography. So I've seen a lot of boudoir photographers offer a really steep discount on a package if you are willing to sign a model release. But whatever the <laughs> the discount is, if you do not want your photos out there in the public, it's probably not worth it. Yeah. And, and that's something that like uh, people who are jumping into the sex work industry, if you're getting into any sort of industry that is involved in sex or nudity or anything like that, especially now with our digital age and the internet, once you put anything out on the internet, it is there. My voice is on the internet on this podcast, on other podcasts of me with me talking about sex, talking about me having sexual acts with other people. Like I, I, that my voice is on the internet. Yes. It's behind a pseudonym, but like that doesn't mean that someone's not going to listen to this podcast and be like, Oh, I know that guy. And suddenly I get some weird message from somebody I haven't heard from in 10 years. Um, like I, I understand that that's, that, that is a risk, but that is a risk that I have consented to that. I understand that, that, that is there. Um, and that's something that if you're getting into this world, you need to understand that that is there as well. And because I value consent so much, you know, before <laughs> Enigma came on the show, um, before anybody comes on the show, I actually, I have a form to fill out with some questions, but one of the things is it explicitly states, you know, don't use your real name, use a scene name. And even still, you need to understand that putting erotic content out there that you are a part of could potentially be damaging to your reputation. And, you know, if you want to be a part of the show, you have to basically certify that you know that, that you're taking that risk consensually. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and that, that's that, that that is a good thing to do, because there's definitely people who have, you know, they they went and did porn, like um, uh, a really good example is the wrong word. But there is 
a a series of of movies we'll call them back in the day uh from a company called girls gone wild where they would go to high population spring break areas around the country and give girls like 20 bucks and be like hey we're gonna video you flashing the camera like doing sex acts on camera and then sell those and but like then those videos ended up on the on the internet they got they ended up on tv like there were people that saw like their a relative saw them in an ad for girls gone wild and and they lost a scholarship so like that's it's an older example but that was like that's something that you need to keep in mind that like there is a risk to this to this industry to this lifestyle and it's something that while it's definitely, you know, a downer. It's it's something that people need to keep in mind when they're when they're getting into this. Absolutely. So I, I think that we covered, you know, most of the highlights about safety and negotiation, really important. But I just want to kind mm-hmm. of circle back to the idea that despite all of the risk, I personally feel that erotic art is really important. You can mm-hmm. use it to inspire fantasies, to communicate with a partner to express yourself in a variety of ways. And I do think that having erotic art be available to the public sort of normalizes all of the really wonderful and exciting variation that comes along with human sexuality, all of which is normal. Right. And it's uh, for me, and I think there's, uh, and I think a, a lot of photographers and also the models who who work with us, like one of my goals is I like, working with different types of people, like different demographics of people, because I I like being able to, like you were saying, like I like being able to express that sexuality that some people may not have seen. People may not have necessarily thought about in a while. Like I like working with uh, different um, genders. I like working with different um, skin tones, different races. Like I, I like working with different groups of people to be able to express that, that sexuality that, that like, flows across the spectrum. Like one complaint that I know happened uh, that has been happening more and more in FetLife, especially after places like Craigslist uh, romance section shut down and backstage shut down is a lot of FetLife, especially if you go to the explore tab on FetLife, it's a lot of skinny white girls doing skinny white girl, sexy things. And while that's incredibly hot, People need want to see themselves. They want to see a variety. They want to see the, a representation of our world. And I think if you're getting into this industry, especially as the photographer, but also as the model, understand that they're, that you're jumping into a wide variety of things that doesn't have to fit into a tiny box. And allow yourself to be creative. Allow yourself to touch on different things. And I think you're going to give a better representation and a more beautiful representation of the sexuality and the people that uh, make up our world. I absolutely agree with you. Yay for inclusivity and erotic art and art in general. (laughs) Um, It's, it's something that's really important to me when I'm writing, especially in my novels. I know that I'm writing in a niche market anyway, because it's kink and it's dark erotica, but I love portraying a wide variety of gender identities and just folks from different walks of life and different kinks, a lot of variety in the types of kinks that I'm depicting. Yay (laughs) for inclusivity in art in general. (laughs) Um, Thanks so much, Enigma. This was a really good conversation. I'm really excited 
that we got to have it. And hopefully we'll have you on the show again in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks, as always, for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnylymain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.